Chapter Twelve of Volume One of the Mysterious Island. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Don Halpert. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. Translated by William Henry Giles Kingston. Volume One, Chapter Twelve. They now began the descent of the mountain. Climbing down the crater, they went round the cone and reached their encampment of the previous night. Pencroft thought it might be breakfast time, and the watchers of the reporter and the engineer were therefore consulted to find out the hour. That of Gideon Spilett had been preserved from the seawater, as it had been thrown at once on the sand out of reach of the waves. It was an instrument of excellent quality a perfect pocket chronometer, which the reporter had not forgotten to wind up carefully every day. As to the engineer's watch, it, of course, had stopped during the time which he had passed on the downs. The engineer now wound it up, and ascertaining by the height of the sun that it must be about nine o'clock in the morning, he put his watch at that hour. "'No, my dear Spilett, wait. You have kept the Richmond time, have you not?' "'Yes, Cyrus.' Consequently, your watch is set by the meridian of that town, which is almost that of Washington. Undoubtedly. Very well. Keep it thus. Content yourself with winding it up very exactly, but do not touch the hands. They may be of use to us. What will be the good of that? thought the sailor. They ate, and so heartily that the store of game and almonds was totally exhausted. But Pencroft was not at all uneasy. They would supply themselves on the way. Top, whose share had been very much to his taste, would know how to find some fresh game among the brushwood. Moreover, the sailor thought of simply asking the engineer to manufacture some powder and one or two fowling pieces. He supposed there would be no difficulty in that. On leaving the plateau, the captain proposed to his companions to return to the chimneys by a new way. He wished to reconnoitre Lake Grant, so magnificently framed in trees. They therefore followed the crest of one of the spurs, between which the creek that supplied the lake probably had its source. In talking, the settlers already employed the names which they had chosen, which singularly facilitated the exchange of their ideas. Herbert and Pencroft, the one young and the other very boyish, were enchanted, and while walking the sailor said, "'Hey, Herbert, how capital it sounds! It will be impossible to lose ourselves, my boy, since whether we follow the way to Lake Grant, or whether we join the Mercy through the woods of the far west, we shall be certain to arrive at Prospect Heights, and consequently at Union Bay. It had been agreed that without forming a compact band, the settlers should not stray away from each other. It was very certain that the thick forests of the island were inhabited by dangerous animals, and it was prudent to be on their guard. In general, Pencroft, Herbert, and Neb walked first, preceded by Top, who poked his nose into every bush. The reporter and the engineer went together, Gideon Spilett ready to note every incident, the engineer silent for the most part, 
and only stepping aside to pick up one thing or another, a mineral or vegetable substance, which he put into his pocket without making any remark. "'What can he be picking up?' muttered Pencroft. "'I have looked in vain for anything that's worth the trouble of stooping for.' Towards ten o'clock the little band descended the last declivities of Mount Franklin. As yet the ground was scantily strewn with bushes and trees. They were walking over yellow calcinated earth, forming a plain of nearly a mile long, which extended to the edge of the wood. Great blocks of basalt, which, according to Bischkoff, takes 350 million years to cool, strewed the plain, very confused in some places. However, there were here no traces of lava, which was spread more particularly over the northern slopes. Cyrus Harding expected to reach, without incident, the course of the creek, which he supposed flowed under the trees at the border of the plain, when he saw Herbert running hastily back while Neb and the sailor were hiding behind the rocks. "'What's the matter, my boy?' asked Spilett. "'Smoke,' replied Herbert. "'We have seen smoke among the rocks, a hundred paces from us.' "'Men in this place?' cried the reporter. "'We must avoid showing ourselves before knowing with whom we have to deal,' replied Cyrus Harding. "'I trust there are no natives on this island. I dread them more than anything else. Where is Top?' "'Top is on before.' "'And he doesn't bark?' "'No. That is strange.' However, we must try to call him back. In a few moments, the engineer, Gideon Spilett, and Herbert had rejoined their two companions, and like them they kept out of sight behind the heaps of balsat. From thence they clearly saw smoke of a yellowish color rising in the air. Top was recalled by a slight whistle from his master, and the latter, signing to his companions to wait for him, glided away among the rocks. The colonists, motionless, anxiously awaited the result of this exploration, when a shout from the engineer made them hasten forward. They soon joined him, and were at once struck with a disagreeable odor which impregnated the atmosphere. The odor, easily recognized, was enough for the engineer to guess what the smoke was which at first, not without cause, had startled him. This fire, said he, or rather this smoke, is produced by nature alone. There is a sulphur spring there which will cure all our sore throats. Captain, cried Pencroft, what a pity I haven't got a cold. The settlers then directed their steps towards the place from which the smoke escaped. There they saw a sulphur spring which flowed abundantly between the rocks, and its waters discharged a strong sulfuric acid odor, after having absorbed the oxygen of the air. Cyrus Harding, dipping in his hand, felt the water oily to the touch. He tasted it and found it rather sweet. As to its temperature, that he estimated at 95 degrees Fahrenheit, Herbert having asked on what he based this calculation. "'It's quite simple, my boy,' said he for in plunging my hand into the water I felt no sensation either of heat or cold. Therefore it has to be the same temperature as the human body, which is about ninety-five degrees. The sulphur spring not being of any actual use to the settlers, they proceeded towards the thicker border of the forest, 
which began some hundred paces off. There, as they had conjectured, the waters of the stream flowed clear and limpid between high branks of red earth, the color of which betrayed the presence of oxide of iron. From this color the name of Red Creek was immediately given the watercourse. It was only a large stream, deep and clear, formed of the mountain water which, half river, half torrent, here rippled peacefully over the sand, there falling against the rocks or dashing down in a cascade, ran towards the lake over a distance of a mile and a half, its breadth varying from thirty to forty feet. Its waters were sweet, and it was supposed that those of the lake were so also. A fortunate circumstance in the event of their finding on its borders a more suitable dwelling than the chimneys. As to the trees, which some hundred feet downward shaded the banks of the creek, they belonged for the most part to the species which abound in the temperate zone of America and Tasmania, and no longer to those conferae observed in that portion of the island already explored to some miles from Prospect Heights. At this time of the year, the commencement of the month of April, which represents the month of October in this hemisphere, that is, the beginning of autumn, they were still in full leaf. They consisted principally of Cosarianus and Eucalypti, some of which next year would yield a sweet manna, similar to the manna of the east. Clumps of Australian cedars rose on the sloping banks, which were also covered with the high grass called Tusac in New Holland, but the coconut, so abundant in the archipelagos of the Pacific, seemed to be wanting in this island, the latitude doubtless being too low. What a pity, said Herbert, such a useful tree, and which has such beautiful nuts. As to the birds, they swarmed among the scanty branches of the eucalypti and the cosarinas, which did not hinder the display of their wings. Black, white, or gray, cockatoos, parakeets with plumage of all colors, kingfishers of sparkling green and crowned with red, blue lorries, and various other birds appeared on all sides as though through a prism, fluttering about and producing a deafening clamor. Suddenly a strange concert of discordant voices sounded in the midst of the thicket. The settlers heard successfully the song of birds, the cry of quadrupeds, and a sort of clacking which they might have believed to have escaped from the lips of a native. Ned and Herbert rushed towards the bush, forgetting even the most elementary principles of prudence. Happily they found there neither a formidable wild beast nor a dangerous native, but merely a half-dozen mocking and singing birds known as mountain pheasants. A few skillful blows from a stick soon put an end to their concert, and procured excellent food for the evening's dinner. Herbert also discovered some magnificent pigeons with bronzed wings, some superb crested, others draped in green, like their congeners at Port Macquarie. But it was impossible to reach them, or the crows or magpies which flew away in flocks. A charge of small shot 
would have made great slaughter among these birds, but the hunters were still limited to sticks and stones, and these primitive weapons proved insufficient. Their insufficiency was still more clearly shown when a troop of quadrupeds, jumping and bounding, making leaps of thirty feet, regular flying mammiferae, fled over the thickets so quickly and at such a height that one would have thought that they passed from one tree to another like squirrels. "'Kangaroos!' cried Herbert. "'Are they good to eat?' asked Pencroft. "'Stewed,' replied the reporter. "'Their flesh is equal to the best venison.' Gideon Spilett had not finished this exciting sentence when the sailor, followed by Neb, and Herbert darted on the kangaroo tracks. Cyrus Harding called them back in vain, but it was in vain, too, for the hunters to pursue such agile game, which went bounding away like balls. After a chase of five minutes they lost their breath, and at the same time all sight of the creatures which disappeared in the wood. Top was not more successful than his masters. Captain, said Pencroft, when the engineer and the reporter had rejoined them. Captain, you see quite well we can't go on unless we make a few guns. Will that be possible? Perhaps, replied the engineer, but we will begin by first manufacturing some bows and arrows, and I don't doubt that you will become as clever in the use of them as the Australian hunters. Bows and arrows? said Pencroft scornfully. That's all very well for children. Don't be proud, friend Pencroft, replied the reporter. Bows and arrows were sufficient for centuries to stain the earth with blood. Powder is but a thing of yesterday, and war is as old as the human race, unhappily. Faith, that's true, Mr. Spilett, replied the sailor, and I always speak too quickly, you must excuse me. Meanwhile, Herbert, constant to his favorite science, natural history, reverted to the kangaroos, saying, Besides, we had to deal just now with the species which is most difficult to catch. They were giants with long gray fur. If I'm not mistaken, there exist black and red kangaroos, rock kangaroos, and rat kangaroos, which are more easy to get hold of. It is reckoned that there are about a dozen species. Herbert, replied the sailor, sententiously, there is only one species of kangaroos to me, and that is kangaroo on the spit, and it's just the one we haven't got this evening. They could not help laughing at Master Pencroft's new classification. The honest sailor did not hide his regret at being reduced for dinner to the singing pheasants, but fortune once more showed itself obliging to him. In fact, Top, who felt that his interest was concerned, went and ferreted everywhere with an instinct doubled by a ferocious appetite. It was even probable that if some piece of game did fall into his clutches, none would be left for the hunters, if Top was hunting on his own account. But Neb watched him, and he did well. Towards three o'clock the dog disappeared into the brushwood, and grunting showed that he was engaged in a struggle with some animal. Neb rushed after him, and soon saw Top eagerly devouring a quadruped, which seconds later would have been past recognizing in Top's stomach. But fortunately the dog had fallen upon a brood, and besides the victim he was devouring, two other rodents, the animals in question belonged to that order, 
lay strangled on the turf. Ned reappeared triumphantly, holding one of the rodents in each hand. Their size exceeded that of a rabbit. Their hair was yellow, mingled with green spots, and they had the merest rudiments of tails. The citizens of the Union were at no loss for the right name of these rodents. They were maras, a sort of agouti, a little larger than their congeners of tropical countries, regular American rabbits with long ears, jaws armed on each side with five molars, which distinguished the agouti. Hurrah! cried Pencroft. The roast has arrived, and now we can go home. The walk, interrupted for an instant, was resumed. The limpid waters of the Red Creek flowed under an arch of kuzanas, banksias, and gigantic gum trees. Superb lilacs rose to a height of twenty feet. Other aborescent species, unknown to the young naturalist, bent over the stream which could be heard murmuring beneath the bowers of verdure. Meanwhile the stream grew much wider, and Cyrus Harding supposed that they would soon reach its mouth. In fact, on emerging from beneath a thick clump of beautiful trees, it suddenly appeared before their eyes. The explorers had arrived on the western shore of Lake Grant. The place was well worth looking at. The extent of water of a circumference of nearly seven miles and an area of 250 acres reposed on a border of diversified trees. Towards the east, through a curtain of verdure, picturesquely raised in some places, sparkled an horizon of sea. The lake was curved at the north, which contrasted with the sharp outline of its lower part. Numerous aquatic birds frequented the shore of this little Ontario, in which the thousand isles of its American namesake were represented by a rock which emerged from its surface some hundred feet from the southern shore. There lived in harmony several couples of kingfishers perched on a stone, grave, motionless, watching for fish, then darting down, they plunged in with a sharp cry, and reappeared with their prey in their beaks. On the shores and on the islets strutted wild ducks, pelicans, water hens, red beaks, philodons, furnished with a tongue like a brush, and one or two specimens of the splendid minera, the tail of which expands gracefully like a lyre. As to the water of the lake, it was sweet, limpid, rather dark, and from certain bubblings, and the concentric circles which crossed each other on the surface, it could not be doubted that it abounded in fish. This lake is really beautiful, said Gideon Spilett. We could live on its borders. We will live here, replied Harding. The settlers, wishing to return to the chimneys by the shortest way, descended toward the angle formed on the south by the junction of the lake's bank. It was not without difficulty that they broke a path through the thickets and brushwood, which had never been pushed aside by the hand of man, and they thus went towards the shore so as to arrive at the north of Prospect Heights. Two miles were cleared in this direction, and then, after they had passed the last curtain of trees, appeared the plateau, carpeted with thick turf, and beyond that, the infinite sea. To return to the chimneys, it was enough to cross the plateau obliquely for the space of a mile, 
and then to descend to the elbow formed by the first detour of the Mercy. But the engineer desired to know how and where the overplus of the water from the lake escaped, and the exploration was prolonged under the trees for a mile and a half towards the north. It was most probable that an overfall existed somewhere, and doubtless through a cleft in the granite. This lake was only, in short, an immense center basin, which was filled by degrees by the creek, and its waters must necessarily pass to the sea by some fall. If it was so, the engineer thought it might perhaps be possible to utilize this fall and borrow its power, actually lost without profit to anyone. They continued to follow the shores of Lake Grant by climbing the plateau, but having gone a mile in this direction, Cyrus Harding had not been able to discover the overfall which, however, must exist somewhere. It was half-past four. In order to prepare for dinner, it was necessary that the settlers should return to their dwelling. The little band retraced their steps, therefore, and by the left bank of the Mercy, Cyrus Harding and his companions arrived at the chimneys. The fire was lighted, and Neb and Pencroft, on whom the function of cooks naturally devolved, to the one in his quality of negro, to the other in that of sailor, quickly prepared some broiled agouti to which they did great justice. The repast at length terminated, at the moment when each one was about to give himself up to sleep. Cyrus Harding drew from his pocket little specimens of different sorts of minerals, and just said, My friends, this is iron mineral, this is pyrite, this is clay, this is lime, and this is coal. Nature gives us these things. It is our business to make a right use of them. Tomorrow we will commence operations. End of chapter 12 Recording by Don Halpert the only Don Halpert at gmail.com.